0: Open your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. We're continuing our look at discipleship. Last week, we we asked, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And we said, it means to live by his script. And that means relationally, biblically, missionally. Biblically, relationally, missionally. Got it in the right order that time. We're learning together uh, to put practices of discipleship to work in our life, as a, as a family, you'll see this document more and more as you connect with Faith Church Ministries because, honestly, that's what it's all about. Jesus' final commission to his disciples was to go, therefore, make disciples, right? So we're going to start out with what that means biblically in terms of how we read the Bible. And I'm going to suggest to us today that what if we ask the question like this, How can we read the Bible like Jesus? How can we read the Bible like Jesus? If he's the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given, if he is our Lord, then how does he read the Bible? I would want to take my cues from him. How can we read the Bible like Jesus? When I was uh, in fourth grade, I had my recorder taken from me in music class because I was one of those boys who should never have been given a recorder. (laughs) So in the middle of class, she's teaching us, you know, hot cross buns or something like that, and I'm just as loud as I can, whatever terrible note I could find, until finally she takes it away from me. Now the other kids, they're actually trying their best, and they're they're looking at the score, they're listening to Mrs. Wailert, the teacher, and they're trying their best. Honestly, it sounded a lot like you know a bunch of squawking. You know, they're trying their best, but as they got a little bit better, it sounded a little bit more like hot cross buns, a little bit more. And honestly, that's, that's a lot like what we're doing here. We are learning to listen to Christ, who is the composer of this great story. And we're learning by grace to interpret, to translate what he has said into this modern stage, this modern moment in which we live. We're seeking to play off his script. Sometimes it, it squawks out. It's not quite exactly right, but we're, we're trying earnestly. Sometimes we're, we're like I was. We're completely ignoring the script and our conductor. We're just totally off. We should have our recorders taken from us for a while while we figure out what it means to connect with Christ, the author, the conductor of this story. So discipleship is biblical, But there can be a disconnect, can't there, between the script and between the actors, between the musicians and the conductor. Uh, In in this passage we're looking at today, we see uh, the first disconnect is called legalism. Folks will read the Bible legalistically. The Pharisees, they would take the Bible and minimize it to be essentially a list of manageable rules so that they could keep them And in that way, they become the hero of the story. The obedient self is the hero of the story for these religious Pharisees. Then there are other kinds of people who would minimize the scriptures by taking out iotas and dots and paragraphs and pages because they didn't believe the scriptures had authority to tell them what to do. The Sadducees, for example, they would minimize the scriptures to Parts of the Torah, they minimize things like the miracles, they would minimize parts of the history, but they would keep the ethics. Many folks today who call themselves Christians do something similar, but what they're doing is they're minimizing the authority of God's word. And in their story, it's the autonomous self who is the hero. The hero is the one who gets to do what they want to do. If you are truly free, doing whatever you think you should do, that makes you the hero of your story. God's word becomes just a thing to be ignored and avoided. Uh, There there could be bad readings. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this today. Um, Literalistic readings. Istic at the end of a word tends to mean it's above and beyond too much. Literalistic. Do you remember Amelia Bedelia in the children's books? You know? Make sure you put out the lights, Amelia Bedelia, and she hangs them on the clothesline. You know, dress the turkey, and she and she dresses it up in this you know little traditional German boy's outfit, and it's hilarious because she's not cooperating with the people who are speaking to her. She's not asking what did they mean when they said that. And as we go to scripture, when we inhabit this story, we we think of, for example. The folks in the first century that Jesus was speaking to, how would they have heard and understood these things? And that takes some work. That takes time together as a community to ask those good questions so that we can not be like Amelia Bedelia when we approach the scriptures, but actually receive them as they were intended. We cooperate with the author and the script. And what we find is that God's word is his script and it's Christ's script. And because of that, I'm welcomed into it because Christ came to fulfill this for us. And, and we aren't the heroes of this story, but rather Christ is the hero and he's mastering us. God's word isn't a thing we master, but something that masters us. But there were these different approaches in Jesus's day. There's different approaches today. What do we as disciples mean when we say we're biblical well today here's what I'm I'm going to ask how can we read the bible like Jesus a disciple looks to Jesus in these things Christ who inhabited the story and fulfilled it for us and so we'll learn by grace to inhabit the story to interpret and to internalize and improvise on it as he would have us but we'll we'll start with praying and then we'll we'll dive in father thank you for your word uh, god I just pray that your Holy Spirit would truly work in us, that we would become attuned with what you are saying, that every barrier and distraction, that every concern, Lord, that you would speak through those, that you would help us to focus on what you are saying to us, that we could have our eyes on the score and learn to play this sheet music beautifully. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen. So first we inhabit, we find our place in the Bible story as it's fulfilled in Christ. What did, what did Jesus come to do? What does it say in verse 17? He came to fulfill. Verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, fulfill them. Don't even think, he says, that I've come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. All of Matthew's gospel is about the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. From the very first verse, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is the son of David who's fulfilling this story of a kingdom that God's people were longing for. And in chapter 4, verse 17, he says, Repent, turn, for the kingdom of heaven has arrived. It's at hand. It's right in front of you. I am the king. And by the end of the gospel, he's saying wild things like all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am the true son of David. I'm fulfilling that story, that longing for a kingdom that will be without end in the world. All of God's peace and goodness filling the world. And he's the son of Abraham. He is bringing blessing among the nations. What was Abraham promised in Genesis twelve three? In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And how does Jesus begin that Sermon on the Mount when all of these people are coming to him, Gentile and Jew, rich and poor, sick and healthy, male and female, all of these people coming together to him and his disciples sitting nearest to him. He opens his mouth and says, blessed, blessed, the poor in spirit, all of the people who thought they were counted out And yet they have purpose in God's plan because all the families of the earth would be blessed. This is the the story that God had been working from the beginning. Christ came to fulfill it. And not only to fulfill the longing for blessing to come to the nations, not only the longing for kingdom and peace and righteousness to fill up the earth, but the longing that God's people could be safe with God and forgiven. From the beginning, there was a problem, wasn't there, in this story? The problem was that they were sinners, that they ran away from God, that they would break his love over their knee. But God made provision time and again from the very beginning of the story. He gave them pictures of sacrifice because as we learn in Hebrews chapter 9, there is no forgiveness without shedding of blood. There's a cost that must be paid. God is eternally glorious and valuable. And when We transgress against him to make that right. The payment is nothing less than infinite. And so Jesus came to lay down his life and and he says he's fulfilling the story in Matthew chapter 26 when he's lifting up the cup as we celebrate every first Sunday together. He says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I have come to fulfill the story It's my blood that offers you forgiveness. It's my blood that covers all nations who look to me in faith. Jesus has come to fulfill this story. In in the days uh, leading up to Jesus' day and even to today, our Jewish neighbors practice the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover as the culminating moment within that feast. And they remember how their Lord delivered them from slavery in Egypt. This was a huge moment in the story of grace as we find it in the scriptures. That God cared for a people that were of no account. And he brought them out to himself to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And they would remember this moment year after year after year. To say, this is my story. In Exodus 12, verse 27, hear this striking language. They participate in the story. What do you say to your children when they ask about what we're doing? Well, you say, This is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the house of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. Our houses. They may be talking a thousand years later, but it was our houses that were spared and the people bowed their heads and worshiped. then in chapter 13, verses eight and nine, we find, again, if you flip that slide over, I can find it in the Bible if you haven't got it up there. Oh, we've got it. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt Again, you could be a thousand years later, but you are saying together, this is my story. The reason why we keep the Passover, the reason we keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread is because the Lord brought me out of Egypt. It shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you. This is my story. The Lord redeemed me. And when we come to the scriptures, we're not just learning facts that are outside of ourselves. We're learning our story and how to inhabit it. This is my story. It's because Jesus died for me that I come and I sing about him. It's because Jesus died for me that I seek by grace to extend that kind of love toward my neighbors. This is why I live the way I live. How do we learn this way together? The boring pastor answer, are you ready for it? It's what you're doing now. Worship, coming together. What do we do together? What do we do? Well, we don't just merely learn about the scripture as facts that we can recite. But we come and we inhabit the story together. We're called back into God's story of grace, into worship. There is a God, and he's calling us to remember who he is. We were walking through our weeks where we kind of become dulled in our senses at times, and we forget that we live in God's world, in God's story, and we are a part of God's mission. But we're called back in worship to remember who God is, to remember his purpose for us. And immediately after that, we're going to realize God is holy and perfect in every way, and so we're led to confess our sins together. We'll be doing this repetitively in some ways as just a motion of discipleship, learning to confess sins to God and to one another as we need to. We, we come together and, and right now around the world and historically the people of God recite what they believe. They recite the story of the saving grace of God in Deuteronomy 25, God's people would recount, a wandering Aramaean was my father, and they'd go on to re- recount how God had redeemed them, a people of no account. In the New Testament, you have the beginnings of little creeds that Christians would confess, like in Colossians, starting in 115. He is the image. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created, whether in heaven or, or on earth or, you know, or under the earth, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And it goes on. These things were recited by early Christians so they would remember who they are, who Christ is, and their part in God's story. And we today as Christians continue that. There's scripture readings, not just so we know the facts, guys. This isn't a trivia contest. We want to inhabit God's story. We want to know how He's leading us, directing us on His stage. We pray for strength that we could be a part of it. That's why the Lord's Prayer says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We're, we're praying that the Lord would bring his kingdom, not only in the world apart from us, but through us. We pray for daily bread that we could be a part of it. We'd have the strength needed. A sermon is a meditation just reflecting on how we inhabit God's story. Baptism, a moment of celebration of being welcomed into that story, putting on his colors, the table where we come together and heaven kisses earth and we recount together that it was for me that Jesus died and bled and he would welcome you as well. So worship, the story we tell in worship, is part of our discipleship. It's how we become a biblical family of disciples. And an encouragement that I give you today is as you think about that in your day-to-day for the next 167 hours after this, how can you implement worship in your ordinary days? When you wake up, to be called back to worship, to the fact that there is a God and that he loves you, that he's good and true and holy. A brief moment, a prayer, something as simple as, Father, I belong to you. Help me to follow you today. Something as simple as that. Christians have come up with ways throughout the ages to try to help one another Be disciples that look to the Lord throughout their days, worshiping him all week long. The Book of Common Prayer was one beautiful expression of this, has morning prayers that you can go through. Wonderful resource. There's all sorts of ways. You can simply open up your Bible and let the Lord call you back to worship. Confess your sin. Look through the scriptures. Relearn your story. Meditate upon it. And let the Lord direct you on how to live today on his stage. Biblical discipleship means finding your place in God's story as it's fulfilled in Christ. But secondly, if we're going to inhabit Christ's story, we have to learn to interpret it, inevitably. We have to learn to interpret it. We take our cues from the Savior King, something that uh, we don't realize. Do you know, uh, it's like the fish in the water thing. The fish doesn't know that they live in water. What's water? We don't know that there are things we're bringing with us when we read the Bible. The Bible isn't a USB that we plug into our head and we download perfectly whatever the Holy Spirit's you know, inspired meaning was from the scriptures. That's not how we work. We have to read. We're human beings. Jesus, fully human, interpreted the scriptures faithfully in every way, and he is Lord of our Bible interpretation. We're going to see that down in, in Matthew 5, just a verse below where we read, starting in verse 21. He does something astounding. What does he do? He says, you've heard that it was said. And he quotes from Moses. You shall not kill. And whoever kills or murders shall be liable to judgment. But then what does he say next? But I say to you, Jesus is claiming an authority greater than Moses and he goes on and he quotes not only from Moses but from their rabbis you've heard it said that you should love your enemies and or love your neighbors and hate your enemies but i say unto you <laughs> he has a different way and he has authority to say that he is interpreting the scriptures perfectly and yet at the end of matthew 7 verse in verse 29 it says that the crowds were astounded because he taught them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. He's not just saying, well, Rabbi so-and-so says thus and such, and Rabbi so-and-so says thus and such, and Franz Dalich says thus and such, and, you know, Radio Preacher X says thus and such. He says, I say unto you. And in his risen glory, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. So we take our cues from him. And so, as we think about the scriptures, these 66 books, Old and New Testaments, how do we relate to the Old Testament? Well, the first thing I think we could see from Jesus is that he doesn't disagree with the Old Testament. If you try to pitch the Old Testament against Jesus, you're doing something that Jesus didn't do. What does he say, starting in verse 18? He says, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law, until all is accomplished. Nothing will pass away. It's it's still authoritative. It's still the word of God until all is accomplished. There's a real sense in which Jesus accomplished something on the cross, isn't there? And what did he say? He said, it is finished. And at that moment, we came into a new chapter in the story. And we find a new way of relating to what we might call the ceremonial law. The pictures of, of sacrifice and blood, the need to be holy and cleansed and washed to avoid certain unclean things. Jesus says in Matthew 15 and in Mark 7, that it's not what you eat, it's not what you bring into your body that makes you unclean, but what comes out of your heart. And Jesus was coming to cleanse the heart from within. He's bringing the story to a new era, but that doesn't mean that we don't still look to the Old Testament and find God speaking and God In his authority directing us. We have to learn in Jesus how to apply that today because he has accomplished all at the cross. And whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. When we start to minimize the authority of God's word, Jesus says, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them by grace and teaches them will be called great. We find even in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, that it's Christ's own spirit that's speaking through these prophets. Christ is the one speaking to us, even in the Old Testament. And what about the New? Well, this is when Christ is bringing this story to a new era of fulfillment. He's sending out disciples among all the nations in his name, And there's grace to us because we've gotten to know about this through the 26 books of the New Testament, or 27, pardon me, books of the New Testament. And there's a couple passages that are important for us in this way. John 14 and John 16, the Lord speaks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he says in John chapter 14, verse 26, first of all, he says that when he goes, when he ascends to the Father, that the advocate, the Holy Spirit whom uh, the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. The thing that I want you to do as a reader of the scriptures is to first ask, who is you? The first you, the first you is the disciples, the apostles. And that's really good news for us (laughs) because that means we've got a New Testament. That means we have folks who the Holy Spirit inspired and led into all truth and recorded faithfully for us who Christ is and how to follow him. The first application of that passage is that Christ spoke to his apostles and we learn to follow him through their testimony. They were his messengers breathed upon with his spirit, sent in his name with his authority. And again, in John 16, similar words, but even more rich. Starting in verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all the truth, y'all disciples. He'll guide you into the truth, for he'll not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears. He'll declare to you the things that are to come. He'll glorify me because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason, I said that he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. And so the apostles of Jesus we're we're able in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write down who he was, what he had done in the gospels and apply that to the churches in the letters that we read in the New Testament to tell the things that are to come in John's revelation. And the, the challenge for us then is to say, what does this mean for us? The Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. When we come to a conclusion that disagrees with them, we're off script. Oh, but I'm following the spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit is the one who speaks through the word. And he doesn't speak just whatever he wants to speak, he speaks what he's heard from Jesus, which is what Jesus spoke to the apostles as we find in the New Testament. We're a biblical people interpreting his word, not interpreting our feelings in the moment. So he leads us into all truth as we look to his word and the spirit guides his people. We filter what we think through Jesus and his apostles. And so a question that we should ask as we read the scriptures, if we reach a conclusion about anything, is does this fit with the script and does this fit with what I know of my director? That's a good question, good set of questions to ask. Otherwise, we, we may be outside the script. This may not be a faithful improvisation, whatever I'm about to do, whatever I may think. Sometimes there's unclear passages. The clearer passages will help us with those. We can learn because all of this is inspired by the spirit of Christ, the same voice speaking in all 66 books. We interpret scripture with scripture. Lesser clear passages making sense of more clear ones and reading in community in the body of Christ where the Holy Spirit speaks, we can get even closer by grace. But what about when we disagree? Because immediately, the first thing that comes into our minds, I think inevitably, when we think about the word interpret, we think about disagreeing with one another. Because we'll say, this is a Westernism, we're all entitled to our opinions, right? We're all entitled to our opinions. You've got yours, I've got mine. It's like a belly button. We've all got one. And so what do we do with that? I would just say to you, Disciples of Jesus looking to him who has all authority in heaven and on earth, none of us are entitled to anything. We're not entitled to opinions. We submit everything we have to Jesus and graciously he saves us even when we're wrong about a lot of stuff. We're not saved by being right. (laughs) We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But what do we do when we come together in community? Uh, A help, I'll offer to you, this is a help that our church and many other churches have found in how we navigate these things. We'll we'll say something like this to one another. Um, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty in all things charity or love. What does that mean? That means if the essentials, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is risen. He's my savior. He's the savior of the world. The scriptures are the word of God. Christ is going to come again and make all things new. These things, these sorts of things are the essentials. If you don't believe these things, what hope do you have? It's not a Christian hope. So we hold our hands tightly around these together and we say, these are the essentials we agree upon. We'll walk in these. We'll stand on these together. When we disagree, we'll come back to that common ground and say, we agree about that. We're both Christians. We love each other. But then we come to non-essentials. So we're, we're careful about not multiplying essentials. But we come to non-essentials. And where we draw the line between essentials and non-essentials is a judgment call made in community among disciples over time with God's grace and help and the guidance of his spirit. But we might name some of those non-essentials, like what do you believe specifically about the last days? What do you believe about the right way to educate your children, whether it's public school or homeschool school or charter school or a private school? We could go on and on and on about things that Christians believe. And they may come to those conclusions on a reading of scripture. But we're just going to say together, in those non-essentials, we'll afford one another liberty. There's a principle from from Romans 14. You can go read that later. That there are questions that earnest people can disagree about. And it doesn't mean that they're both right. (laughs) But God is gracious to us knowing we're creatures and we can't know everything like he does. But I would caution you to be careful about flippancy with non-essentials, because we'll say they don't even matter. And again, we're not entitled to our opinions. In all things, we're gonna reverently seek to honor the Lord. In all things, charity. First love of God, and love of neighbor. So if we disagree among Christians, we're not going to assume because you disagree with me, you're actually a closet atheist. Or you're a conservative and so you say, you're actually a closet liberal, that's why you believe that. Or you're a liberal and you say, you're a closet conservative, and that's why you think that. You think that because you're not, you're not brave and strong and true like me. We don't do that. We afford charity, even among other than Christian people. Jesus said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say unto you. So when you disagree with a person who this culture would say is your enemy, even they might say you're their enemy. How do we relate to them? Do we relate to them in our disagreements with meanness, with undercutting ways, with the things we learn from the world? No! We relate to them in grace and truth and love and integrity and the things we learn in Jesus. Because we take our cues from him. We interpret scripture under his authority. Biblical discipleship means that Jesus is Lord of our Bible interpretation. Thirdly, we inhabit, we interpret, Oh, and I lost... It's disappeared somewhere into the recesses, but I know what I'm going to say. Anyhow. Aha! There he is. We internalize. We internalize. When we come to the scriptures, how do we relate to them? I've already said they're not just mere facts outside of ourselves, but rather we internalize them. We make... The scripture, our food, it's our sustenance. How did Jesus relate to the scripture? In in Matthew 4, starting in verse one, it says, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. We remember that Israel, God's people, were in the wilderness 40 years, hungering. And in that time, as we read about it in Deuteronomy 8 and before, We find they weren't always faithful, were they? They didn't always depend upon God's word as their food. And the tempter came to Jesus in verse three and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, a passage which he's fulfilling for the record being the faithful son of God, unlike Israel who was unfaithful in the wilderness, Jesus is faithful for his people. But how does he do that? He, He does it by eating God's word. It's his food. It's his sustenance. He feels like he's dying in his humanity if he's not eating God's word. I wonder, are you eating? What is your your dietary life like with respect to scriptures? I I think for many of us, we have moments in our lives when we're voracious. When we first come to know the Lord and we start diving in, maybe it's in a navigator's Bible study or maybe it's your first Sunday school class you get to have. You're just diving in and digging in and there's this excitement. It's a glory. Sometimes those seasons last. Sometimes they don't. And when they don't, Something that can happen is we can start to feel that we're satisfied with with what we have, and we can find more satisfaction in other things, things that uh, honestly are empty calories, right? So, all of us have some margin in our life where we enjoy God's good creation, good created things. You know, we, we enjoy some good pickleball, we enjoy Netflix shows, you know, we enjoy a good card game. We enjoy good things, but when we take those good things and we are expecting them to fill us up, to satisfy us forever, we've made them God things. And good things can't be God things because they're created things. (laughs) They're not the creator. We can fill our hearts with empty calories. And I just wonder, are you filling yourself with the things that will En- enable you to endure. If we, we just went to Long's Peak yesterday and we didn't make it to the top. We stopped at the keyhole because it was icy, me and some guys. And the day before, we, we tried our best to eat somewhat well. You know, we drank a lot of water. We, we took food with us that would give us fuel. There were things we didn't eat because we didn't want those empty calories when we went on a 14-mile hike and we were going up to 14,000 feet. You are going to be tempted in the wilderness. You're going on a longer hike than a 14-mile hike. You're going on an average 79-point-some-odd-year hike until the Lord brings you home, and he's calling you to be faithful. You need fuel. What is that fuel? It is the word of God, because man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Eat. Take it and eat it. A simple way that you might internalize the word of God, taste and see that it's good, is something that we'll practice briefly at the end of the message today. We'll listen to Jesus. We'll not only read something that's on a page, words on a page, Holy Spirit inspired words, but we're gonna then pause. And as we seek to digest that food, we ask the author, the script writer, our director, we ask him, how do we internalize this? How do I follow you today? What does this mean for me today? What are you saying in your word to me? We let him apply it to our hearts and listen to Jesus. But a remarkable thing about Jesus is that he doesn't just leave us to get fat and happy with the word, to just learn and memorize and delight in. All of those are good things, but what does he say about his food? Not only does he eat scripture, but he eats the father's will john 4 verse 34 jesus said to them my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work so if we would read the bible like jesus we would inhabit it by grace we'd interpret it in keeping with him we will internalize it but then we are going to improvise it we're going to be applying it to all of life because the food of jesus is to do the will of God. This is part of our diet. So we improvise and apply scripture on this new stage wherever the Lord puts us. Jesus says in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. This may sound daunting to us. We think of the scribes and Pharisees as these perfectly holy people, but remember what they were doing. They in fact in many ways minimized God's word down to just a rule, a rule book a list of do's and don'ts, and they even managed those down so that they could actually check them off as though they did them. We receive God's word, and we see that it's this overwhelming story of grace, that I'm a sinner, that I don't even deserve to be on this stage at all, and yet the Lord has welcomed me in through Christ's blood, and he's commissioning me to follow him. What a wonder, what a grace. I get to follow Jesus further up and further in to his will by his grace. The Pharisees would make it easy on themselves and hard on others. They would tie up burdens too heavy to bear, and they wouldn't lift a finger to help. But in Jesus, we learn a different way. And we find, as Jesus said, that we're called to pursue love. What's what's the great and first commandment? Love the Lord your God, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus says. Matthew 22 verses 36 to 39 and sometimes I want to tell you the the thing that the church has shown the world the the melody she's played has been beautiful she's remained pure from the world in moments of great temptation she's pursued things like education for all not just for the wealthy that comes from the result of Christian convictions in the West. Modern hospitals, where do those come from? From Christian convictions that not just the children of the wealthy and nobles, that they should receive medical treatment, but all. It comes from a Christian heart of love. Civil rights for our African American neighbors and human dignity for all. The defense of the pre-born, affording dignity to those who have not yet been born. Truly human neighbors. And those who are older and aging, defense of their dignity as well, the disabled. This comes from a Christian conviction. The idea of the sanctity of life makes no sense outside of Christian convictions. We've done wondrously showing this script to the world in many ways, and in our words, speaking the true message of salvation through the ages, but we haven't got it right every time. And many of our neighbors have seen us squawk out bad notes or sometimes ignore the script altogether. And so some of our neighbors, when they think of biblical Christianity, they might feel a little bit turned off. They might judge the church and its performance. And so there's a little video we have queued up to help us think about this. If you go ahead and play that for us. Jesus Christ on account of the many sins of his followers. But perhaps it's too busy. like judging a piece of music on the basis of a bad judge a piece fairly, we know to distinguish between the masterpiece that was written and the pretty ordinary performance. wrote a beautiful composition, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. There's no denying that Christians have sometimes played completely out of tune, pursuing hatred, opulence and bloodshed in Christ's name. But they've also played it beautifully and with lasting effect. Of course, a divine performance doesn't cancel out a hellish one. But all of this should remind us that a bad delivery doesn't diminish the genius of the original composition. It's an open question how consistently the church has played the melody Jesus gave the world. What can't be doubted is that the message of Jesus has resonated far beyond the walls of the church. Whatever we make of Christianity's theological claims, its ethic of love has given us much of what we value most in the world today. It's easy to judge the church on a bad performance, but there's a glorious composition we're learning together to play, and you may squawk it out like John Dixon, and he actually did a pretty good job with his week and a half of practice. That that may be our performance. And by grace, the Lord is honored when we bring him our best. But by grace, we also learn to be sharpened more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. And that's where we're running, folks, further up and further in, learning his script, learning to show it to our neighbors around us. And that's my prayer that by grace, we're going to show something beautiful, something beautiful, even as Jesus showed us in laying down his life for us and welcoming us into his story. So let's pray. Father, please, Lord, help us to reflect Christ faithfully. Help us to show forth a beautiful picture, a resounding melody of grace to this world. Help us to be true to your word. Help us to be feisty in faith, to cling to our Savior in all his ways. We ask that in his name. Amen.